0: All right. good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. Um, We will uh, begin with an invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen all right well last week we did all the preliminary material and we did get into the text the first few verses being especially dense we made it through maybe the first four verses of chapter one and today we'll have opportunity to go a little faster um There are some curiosities, obviously, about the book of Hebrews and some kind of uh, unique theological elements to it. And we'll have time to look at some of those as we progress, maybe particularly into uh, chapter 2. So just to bring us back up to speed, chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets... But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Already we're doing kind of a shift but and a, and a compare, contrast between the Old Testament and the New. And that, in a sense, is kind of a, a major thematic, if not the major thematic element of the book. Okay? So we're going to see that play itself out too in chapter 1. So, again, picking up mid-sentence, he has spoken to us by his Son in these last days. we talked about how we have been in the last days, the last epoch or era prior prior to the coming of Jesus and the dawning of a new age. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. And we'll get more detail on this in chapter 2, but this is... The Father appointing the Son, Heir, Inheritor of all things. And there's going to be, again, a compare and contrast between the original creation, where the angels are given authority to run everything, um, and the new age, which is to come, in which Christ will be given to run everything. And yet, not Christ alone, but... Christ with us as King of Kings Lord of Lords so we'll talk about that as we progress into chapter 2 how this theology of compare and contrast first creation second creation first covenant second covenant continues as a major sort of theme or way of doing theology throughout this text All right, so Christ has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, taking us back to Genesis 1, where um, God creates the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. And with that speaking, there is the word, to use the John's term for it, and here in Hebrews we see the same. Through whom also he created the world. God creates the world through his word, namely through Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Again, the picture given to us is um, the, the sun and the sunshine. The two can be distinct, and yet they're of the same essence. And then also the exact imprint of his nature. So you can think of a a stamp going into wax, like a seal. And you can think of the stamp, the protruding parts, and the seal receiving that. And those two match up perfectly, complementary, symmetrical, um, and also reflective of one. And so you can see that in this language of the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that is Jesus, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power beautiful hymn that he, we have received as Lutherans you know um, in in her arms was the Lord in Mary's arms was the Lord of all who feeds the ravens when they call this kind of theology this kind of sentiment meditating on his smallness and his dependency uh, And the mystery and majesty that even in that very moment, he's upholding all things, um, as the author of Hebrews says, by the word of his power. All right, now we, um, this has all been largely creation in terms of scope. And now we pivot just slightly, I don't want to make too big of a distinction here, but we pivot slightly after making purification for sins. This is language of what the High Priest would do, particularly in the context of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Blood would be brought into the holiest of holies and would be poured out upon the Mercy Seat, the Ark of the Covenant, in which is held the Ten Commandments. And so the blood of of Christ, in this case, covering the accusation of the law, covering the mercy seat of God that our sins are atoned for and his mercy would be upon us, and um, thus making purification for our sins. But this is this is an example of kind of technical, liturgical language that comes to us from the temple. So, after making purification for sins, um, here in view, obviously, his cross, his atoning death, where he is... On um, both priest and sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We talked about the coronation of Jesus and spent some time talking about this, how this takes place after he made purification for sins. That is, after his death, after his resurrection, when he ascends to heaven. Um, Revelation, the book of Revelation picks up this same theme. He is coronated. He is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, again, we don't want to let it escape us that we are seeing here a depiction of Christ as um, high priest and as high king. So, priest and king. And then, what? We move into this contrast with the angels, which is going to absorb the first portion of our class today. Why do you think a contrast with angels? There's probably two major reasons,
1: and I've already I've already hinted at one. Yep. Yeah, they were in charge of the old of the war, earth in the old covenant. And a transition is that Christ will be the uh, in charge, you know, my, you know overall things exactly. of the New Testament.
0: Exactly. And and to maybe just parse out a, a distinction there. So as we will see, as we move along, um, the angels in the scriptures are said to be in control over the nations of the world. That is handed over to Christ. So we have a contrast between the first creation and the new creation that is to come and sort of the angelic government and governance over the old creation that is going to be replaced by Christ and his saints, their government and governance in the new creation. All right. That's the first. And then also, if we kind of, again, zoom in a little or make a little bit of a distinction and not to make too sharp of one, the Old Covenant, we'll, we can take a look at a scripture too that assert this. The Old Covenant, so think of Sinai, was delivered to Moses by angels. So angels are the mediator of the Old Covenant. Okay, who's the mediator of the New Covenant? Jesus, of course. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And so the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount calvary is who's doing the mediating so um, again in terms of the rhetoric and the purpose of hebrews we are contrasting old creation with the superiority superiority of the new creation governance by angels eclipsed by governance by christ and his saints we're talking about the old covenant the cyanatic covenant in which Angels were mediators, and Moses, a sinner, was the recipient, and we're going to contrast that with the glory of the new covenant, namely Christ as the one mediator between God and man, and the new and sinless Moses, the one who follows after Moses, who's like Moses and yet transcends and eclipses him in every way. Alright, so then with these things in mind, with the old creation, new creation, and with the old covenant, new covenant, it's very important then, you can see for us to be able to understand what... In what sense is Christ greater than the angels? How does this dynamic work? And, of course, then naturally, you're kind of in the headspace of the author of Hebrews. You're starting to think theologically the way he thinks theologically. And you can see then what he's going to be doing throughout the remainder of chapter 1 and how this isn't just kind of out of the blue. Hey, by the way, I want you all to know that Jesus is better than the angels. Um, We're we're seeing that um, Jesus and the new creation, Jesus and the new covenant, are transcending that of uh, of the angels. Also, angels, are created beings. angels are created beings. Jesus is uncreated. Yes, and that's going to be drawn out in the in the quotation of the Psalms and Old Testament texts to demonstrate the superiority of Christ and that which has come and is yet to come.
1: Uh, this reference to being seated at the right hand of God. Uh, can you help me understand that? Because I think I have. Uh... Misunderstanding of that. Uh, what is that?
0: <laughs> okay. Well, very sim- Okay. Very simply, I think why this becomes difficult for us is because in the uh, in the Reformation period, sixteenth uh, century and into the seventeenth century, a big deal was made by um, folks who don't believe in Jesus' presence in the Lord's Supper—that His body and blood are there for us Christians to eat and drink for our And so, one of the arguments they made is Jesus' body and blood can't be on the altar where he says they are um, because they're stuck up at the right hand of God. Okay? (coughs) And then the argument goes, if it's truly a human body, it has to be in one place and not in other places. So the argument goes. Now, um, the Lutheran reaction to this is kind of twofold. First of all, if Jesus says this is his body and this is his blood, we're to believe that and not create some sort of sophisticated argument why that couldn't possibly be the case. And then the secondary question is when you look at this statement of to be seated at the right hand of God or to be at the right hand of God, and you just do a biblical study of that phrase, you actually find it all the way through the Old Testament and it becomes an idiomatic, well, what becomes obvious is that this is an idiomatic expression, a Hebrew idiom. Wherever God's right hand is at work, wherever God's right hand does valiantly, wherever God's right hand saves, I'm using this language to jog your memory, ways that the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, speak about God's right hand. Then for Jesus said to be, uh, for it to be said of Jesus that he ascends to the right hand of God or is present at the right hand of God is really saying something less about geography less about time and space kind of constraints, um, and more about how Christ as true man, and true God, but here as true man, has been taken up to the right hand and majesty of the Father, so that wherever God does valiantly, wherever God saves, he's doing so in and through Christ. So, in other words, then, maybe the key difference here would be we don't need to conceive of this as if, well, Jesus is seated at precisely the right hand of the Father. Um, that's kind of odd anyway, because the Father isn't often depicted as having a right hand, <laughs> um, and that he's there and nowhere else, you know, or that he's there in his body and nowhere else in his body. And of course, as soon as you make that move, you've got a You've got a big issue because now you've got Jesus down here without his body and Jesus up there with his body. Precisely how many Jesuses do you have then? An embodied Jesus and a disembodied Jesus. That's two Jesuses. And so now we've done, we now we've done a new version of Nestorianism. Uh, Nestorius, the ancient heretic that described, um, the humanity and divinia, divinity of Jesus such that you couldn't help but conclude that there were two Jesuses, not one. So, we're going to avoid all that nonsense. Um, now, a, a really helpful thing to have in mind here, and I hope you don't mind, maybe this is of interest, maybe it's not, but I hope you don't mind. Um, by virtue of the Incarnation, by virtue of uh, the Divine Son of God assuming humanity, that humanity can do things that normal humanity can't do. Um so, for example, um, we see that Jesus can do miracles through his body. He can walk on water. He can pass through, um, pass or appear in the midst of a room that's totally locked and sealed. He can do things that defy our understanding of a natural body and its limitations. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, Well, we're coming up, not this weekend, but the next weekend, on the Transfiguration. Transfiguration is a really good place to study this and wrap your mind around it, because what the texts say is that it's actually Jesus' face, his human face, that shines. So, his human face is shining with what kind of light? Divine light, yeah. Now, if you're going to argue this really tight kind of like, well, a human body doesn't do that, and therefore this can't be, you've just, you see the problem. You've just destroyed the human. But if you understand this in in the proper way, in the way that um, Christians have all the way up, in, until the Lutherans, and the way the Lutherans continue to put this forward, what you see is the divinity shining through and transforming, transfiguring the humanity. And this shining through, or this transforming or transfiguring, this the taking of divine attributes and pouring them out through the human nature um, is called the genus myastaticum. And in, in myastaticum you can hear majesty. That's the Latin. So the majesty of the divine nature, shining through the human nature. The transfiguration is a glorious place to kind of grasp this, and then by extension, to grasp the Lutheran argument that in the same way a, a human face, which is not its nature to shine with divine light, nonetheless shines with divine light, does that which a human nature cannot in and of itself do. How does this apply then to the Lord's Supper? Well, that a human body can't be in two places at once, or on this altar, or on that altar, or eaten without being consumed, or anything like this, um, but it can if the divine nature is pouring out its attributes in and through it, such that it can be present wherever and can be received and eaten without being consumed or annihilated, this kind of thing. Um, so, again, all of this is kind of the, the Christology we see in the Scriptures that make it possible for us to believe in completely good conscience what Jesus says is true. This is my body. This is my blood, given and shed for you, for your forgiveness. Okay, long-winded answer, but um, hopefully that helps understand why this idea of the right hand of God is difficult for us. Um, you know, and, and Kleinig in his commentary spends some time too, because um, in re- and, and he spent some time just kind of saying that this conception in Hebrews of him sitting at the right hand of God and the conception that you see depicted in. Um, revelation of him being enthroned with God really aren't at odds with each other either. This is just both expressive; they're both expressive of the co-regency, the reign of the Father and the Son together. Hopefully, that makes sense. So, Christ is coronated; he's enthroned in heaven. He and the Father reign together, and he is bringing us there as. Co heirs to reign with him also. And this is a peculiar part of the, the theology of Hebrews that we're going to come into is that there's this progression of Christ Himself as He is prepared to become the um, co regent as man. Okay, you say, well, as Son, wasn't he always? Yes, but not as man. And then we're going to see this preparation for Christ to also reign in heaven as high priest well didn't he as a son yes but not as man for men okay and in that sense he it takes on an entirely new meaning and then as we're also going to see by extension that christ isn't doing this merely for himself but also for us that we might also be well reign with him and that we might also be royal priests, heavenly and holy priests forever. So he becomes the high priest over many priests and the high king over many kings and that's our role uh, in the heavenly realm and particularly in that age which is to come. So we're gonna see all of this spelled out in the book of Hebrews. Um, I hoped not to get ahead of myself and I did anyway. Alright, so um, back back then to why It's important, and I think we did this sufficiently, for the author of Hebrews to contrast Christ and the angels. And so, again, verse 4, we're mid sentence here. Having become as much superior to angels, look at the having become. Okay, there's always process um, in the book of Hebrews. It's one of the kind of We see glimpses of this in Luke's Gospel, how Jesus as a human being grows in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. There's growth, there's progress, but Hebrews is really the place where this is the richest in terms of its expression and articulation. So, um, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has in inherited, there's that language of being an heir and inheriting, is more excellent than theirs. Now, Kleinig is going to remind us that this, what's chiefly in view here isn't just the incarnation, but is the incarnation that leads to his coronation. So, even even if you were to pit those two against each other, um, Kleinig is going to say, hey, it's more accurate to view the the coronation than the incarnation. I don't, I'm don't. i not so certain we need to pit those two against each other, I think, as long as we don't stop with the incarnation. It's the incarnation leading to the coronation um, that's in view. All right, so let's get into this, the argument then, because really that, that last part of verse 4, becoming much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, that really sort of serves as the launch pad for all that comes next. For to which of the angels did God ever say, now quoting Psalm 2 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Okay. And um, obviously the answer is well, to none of them. <laughs> okay. So the angels aren't sons, but he is a son, and of course in view here is the incarnate one as his son. Not the pre-incarnate one, but the incarnate one. Again, otherwise this loses all its rhetorical punch. I mean, it's kind of like, why is he contrasting the, the divine son with the angels? Was not the divine son above the angels even at creation when Through him they were made, through him the angels were made, of course. What's the whole point in which this needs to be said, and at which point it's fascinating and interesting and maybe even surprising, is that this is spoken of the incarnate one, of a human being. Because again, in view here is Christ's true humanity, his human nature. So to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. To to really drive home the point, it's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, But to this man, to this human being, he has said this. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, now, similar, similar, um, this second statement. Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, notice the future tense there. This, um, as long as my Ancient of Days notes here remain correct, I didn't double-check them, comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. Um, there, the context, obviously, is kingship. And, um, coronation. And I think then you can see why, um, why that factors as evidence into Kleinig's position. Um, and then verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, listen, look at what the study note says, because I think that this is right, or at least it gets us off in the, in the right train of thought. A king's firstborn son, this is the note on verse 6, would usually succeed to the throne. See, that, that's the key here. Because Jesus is the quote-unquote firstborn of the Father, the glory, honor, and power of the Father also belong to Jesus. Okay, so, so then this idea of, I have begotten you, you know, today I have begotten you, like obviously that kind of evokes some thoughts of the incarnation. I don't think that that's wrong, um, but I do think that in the context of the rhetoric, the point moves beyond um, mere incarnation to the point that you are my son, this is the the Father Almighty, ruler over all, who's saying, you are my son, you are the heir, the inheritor. That is namely to say, you will rule with me. And that's really the rhetorical punch of these verses. So then you can see why he's quoting from 2 Samuel. You remember from 2 Samuel, this is talking about the kings of Israel and this, um, this proclamation of Christ that he will come God will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. Again, the context is in terms of reigning, so that he will also reign with me. All right, and then so too with verse 6, the firstborn into the world. Of course, this evokes like thoughts of the incarnation. And again, I wouldn't drive you away from those. I think that that's apropos, fitting in every way. But again, the thrust of the argument isn't merely the incarnation, but it's rather, as the study note indicates, that he comes as the firstborn into the world, that he might be coronated such that the entire world would be under him, including angels. And that's where we go next in the latter half of verse 6. So again, verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So, who's bringing the firstborn into the world? The Father. And the Father says, let all God's angels worship my Son. Fall down prostrate before him. Now, um, just again, because of the language itself, it lends itself to us thinking of the Incarnation, thinking of the angels singing and worshiping him, at the birth in the Bethlehem sky, and I don't think any of that's wrong at all. I think that that's exactly right in a fruitful way of thinking. Kleinig's going to going to lean on us to view the coronation of Jesus, especially here, and I and again I think contextually he has a point. It's not merely the incarnation; it's that the incarnate one is going to um, become the high priest, become the the ruler and the king. Um, he's going to demonstrate these things manifestly by his faithfulness unto death, by his resurrection. And then and Kleinig really wants to hear this verse in this way, that when Jesus ascends into heaven and is enthroned in heaven, then all the angels worship him, are prostrate before him. So, and I think, you know, again, I, I appreciate that sentiment, I, so that's why I'm bringing it up um, for you to consider. So this is a stunning thing, of course, because um, man has been made a little lower than the angels, and yet here in Christ, a man is elevated far above them. It's a contrast between man and angel, but in this case, the man also happens to be God. All right, verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 104.4. A very interesting statement. Really, kind of just depicting the, ma- I mean, rhetorically speaking, depicting the majesty of the angels. That winds can be spirits, and some take this as a proof text for the ontology of angels. Angel, and I, whether you take this as a proof text or not, it's nonetheless true. The ontology of angels is their spirits. They don't have bodies. Um, an angel is really expressive of what they do. It's their office. It's messenger. At times in the history of the church, even, even pastors have been called angels. I wonder why that didn't stick. because angels simply means messenger, Um, so these are spirits who, um, you know, I'm called pastor, that's not my ontology, (laughs) that's my office, Um, they're angels, that's not their ontology, that's their office, they're spirits. Anyway, I'm just pointing that out by way of passing, it's not necessary here, in fact, it's just quite poetic, his angels are winds and his ministers a flame of a fire, but despite this great and awesome majesty you have in verse 8, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, look why Kleinig is so interested in leaning towards the coronation, because it keeps emerging as a theme over and over, not merely the Incarnation. It keeps emerging over and over, um, this kingship, this reigning. Your throne, O God. And isn't this just, I mean, wonderful language? God, the Father, says to God the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, this wouldn't, this wouldn't even make sense if not for the Incarnation. He's saying this to a man. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, Psalm 45. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, gosh, isn't this fantastic? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And there's the oil, you know, again in this context, the anointing with oil is precisely how the kings were um, ritually selected. It was the beginning of their coronation to be anointed with oil, um, to be Christed, and thus to become anointed once Messiah is Christ. So you can see all that play here um, that this Jesus is true man, but he's also true God. His throne endures forever. He's been anointed with the oil, um, uh, anointed and coronated by God himself. Okay, so what's the point then? Again, um, how much more superior is Christ than the angels? That's the point so far. Um, any, uh, Any questions? Are we doing okay? There's probably um, there's probably details in here. I'm not going to be able to exactly help much, just due to the limitations of my time and this study. But happy to help in any way I can. Um, was there a, a point in time when uh, Christ was crowned, as king, the kingship? Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you always have this problem when you try to get too specific with things. But what we see in the cross is that he's crowned with thorns. We cannot go away from that as a coronation. Like That is a coronation. Um, And I also, I just don't want to try to develop a theology here that may not even prove to be right. Um, But let's just say that that's definitively a coronation. He's crowned with thorns above his head, king of the Jews. Okay? But there is a sense in which that coronation comes to its climax and fulfillment in the heavenly coronation that takes place at his ascension, okay. um, and there there is great change that takes place at his ascension. Again, um, in Revelation, the early chapters of Revelation, you see this in spades. Off the top of my head, I want to say it's um, Revelation four, but let me take a let me take a look at this. Yeah, in Revelation four. Um, uh, John gets carried up into heaven in the Spirit and he sees the one seated upon the throne, um, as much as he one can see him. <laughs> he always remains mysterious, the Father. And then and then he sees the Spirit, the sevenfold torch, the spirits of God. but who's missing? The Son. We don't know where the Son is and, and then there's this whole there's this whole liturgy that takes place. And then there's this great question, this loud, this angel with a loud voice saying, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one is found, and John is weeping in heaven. And um, weep no more. One of the elders says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is kingly language, the root of David. Fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but again, kingly language, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then, John says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven uh, horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and he opens the scroll, etc. Okay, and then as we go on, he is um enthroned. And so this is the heavenly coronation. And Revelation, we get, you know, Revelation shows us this movie from all or shows, yeah, it's like a movie. It shows us this event from different angles. We get a different angle of this event in Revelation 12. Like, well, what what happens to the to the devil and the evil angels who have heretofore been allowed to come up into heaven and accuse the brothers day and night well they're suddenly cast down by the one who has conquered them that's the language of conquering we just heard a moment ago so you know again i don't want to make this big deal like the cross and crucifixion were his earthly coronation necessarily and that was his heavenly coronation necessarily that would be i think a tenuous kind of statement to make but it at least helps us to see that these two things are one. It's precisely being crowned on the cross that makes him victor and conqueror and thus crowned in heaven. Does that get to the point? Okay. All right, well, a little bit more with this um, rhetorical line of contrasting the man, Jesus, with the holy angels. Verse 10, and... (laughs) <laughs> this is great. So back in verse eight, your throne, O God, and here, you Lord, this is Psalm one hundred two, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And Lord, here is Kyrios, which just isn't evident to us in the in the English the way it probably would have been to to people of the first century. But this is like this is essentially calling him um, Yahweh because that's the translation that comes into the Septuagint. Um, for Yahweh is, is Adonai, Lord, and Lord in Greek is Kyrios. Did I get all that right? I think I did. Yahweh to Adonai, Adonai to Kyrios. And so to see Kyrios is to see Yahweh. That's the, that's the bottom line. It's not so clear to us, but very clear to them. Um, okay, so he, he's being called God and Lord. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And again, the punch of this is that this is being spoken of the Incarnate One. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So again, now, uh, contrasted not only with... um, the angels to Christ and Christ's superiority, but even Christ to the first creation. first creation is as nothing before him. It's all rolled up and put away and taken off and thrown into the hamper. Um, (laughs) Christ remains and abides forever. Okay, Um, and then just wrapping up this rhetorical section, verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said? Again, the he here is the Father. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this again, coronation language. Um, and this is, by the way, where we're at. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is enthroned in heaven. He is reigning in And we are in the process of the Father making all his enemies the footstool under his feet. Um, In Next in this chapter, we're going to spend a little more time on it, but the author of Hebrews is going to say, even though this is an objective, historical reality and fact, um, at present we don't yet see everything subject to him. It doesn't mean it's not true, it's just that we don't yet see it. And that probably is the that probably is one of the most important things for us to wrestle with, you know, right now in in our lives as Christians, because we uh, because of our unbelief. I mean, you can see the unbelief of your heart and how it infects your whole perception of the world. At least, maybe you're maybe. You I know you're holier than I am. Maybe maybe even in regard in this in this perception, you've got um you've got it more accurate. But I find myself constantly struggling because, you know, what you see is not Christ reigning. What you see is the principalities and powers of darkness manipulating man into all kinds of crazy and bizarre things. I mean, wars and greed and all the atrocities we see man do to himself and in the book of Revelation, for example, we see all of this going on. We think, how on earth can Christ reign? You know, and then you start to just think like, well, this is this my imagination? Is this my pious hope and desire? But it's not really how I perceive things. And so you repent of this. This is false belief. This is false perception. You repent of this and you reassert have this, you, what the scriptures themselves say and inform you that Christ does indeed reign. All authority in heaven on earth have been given to him. Just because we don't see it yet, doesn't mean it's not true. And we need to act and live and speak as if it were true, um, precisely because it is. Yeah. Alright? So, um, yeah, then um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, verse fourteen wraps up this part of the argument. Are they not all ministering spirits? Um, you know, servant spirits. Here is kind of the idea of ministering. Um, although, yeah, now that I now that I look at this, although it's it does take on a more technical sense here because the ministering is liturgica, from which we get liturgical. So. <laughs> It's a little anachronistic, but are they not all liturgical spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Um, you know, again, what, is this, what does this do for us? Well, a few things. But in terms of the tightness of the rhetoric, we're seeing that the coronation and the kingship and reign of Jesus um, is one where he reigns not only over Jerusalem, the capital city, but over the temple in Jerusalem. And so it's a kingship and high priesthood and the angels are subservient to him in this regard, um, including their liturgical role as a ministering spirit sent out to serve. And then what are they sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. So the angels are sent to serve and minister to us. Um, and for our sake, as we are inheritors of the salvation Christ has won for us, and as we ourselves are being um, elevated with him, glorified with him, um, to become those kings over which he's king and those
1: priests over which he's high priest. Esther, Yes, sir. Uh, so our evening prayer, Luther's evening prayer, where we uh, talk about the, uh, or in our prayer, we, we mention or, petition that the uh, your holy angel will watch over me so the uh, evil spirit will have no power mm-hmm. this is consistent with this truth in mm-hmm. other words the angels are not dismissed stage left they they're involved in working underneath christ yeah so. absolutely if we had eyes to see it we'd we'd see an
0: entire angel hierarchy you know as it were uh Governing and ruling over the nations and all things. Now a good number of those angels, you know, fallen and or being or the good angels being opposed by the bad angels and this kind of thing. You glimpse this in Daniel. Remember the angels fighting and resisting each other and this kind of thing. Um, We don't know how this works, so we don't make a big deal about it, but we do know that it's there and it sure as heck helps to understand what just plainly doesn't make any sense why this nation suddenly wants to destroy this nation and you know why there's going to be war and and you know it's just i mean there's a supernatural element to it and that's just given to us in the scriptures that that is just simply a fact um but then we, if we had our eyes to op- open to see, we would also see um, God's holy angels walking with us and protecting us. And I don't know that we need to be so tight as to say you're assigned one guardian angel, you know, this kind of thing. Um, there's not exactly a proof text for that in the scriptures. I, knowing God, it's like, why would he, he probably would give you more than one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so that's how gracious he is. And, but no his angels are all around us protecting us worshiping with us that's what we say in the liturgy to remind us with angels archangels and all the company of heaven um they're not far away they're remember how they they um descend and ascend upon the son of man and therefore the the in at one with his good purposes for our good for our blessing and benefit so yeah the angels are our dear friends and we won't you know, we don't get to know them and indeed we shouldn't pay too much attention to them. There's a couple times in scripture where, um, you know, somebody pays too much attention and falls down to worship. <laughs> they get, re- they get real indignant and snippy. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm created just like you. We worship the one God together. Um, but this is, this is part of the delight and desire for heaven too is it, we're going to find, you know, not only among the saints, all kinds of camaraderie and joy and family. But unspeakable joy amongst these angelic beings, who in many respects have been with us and watched us and helped us and aided us, we'll be able to thank them. We'll be able to see and appreciate their work, um, because of God's grace and the empowering of His Holy Spirit. They'll be able to say, you know, to us, "I saw when you did that, and when you you made the good confession, and you took a stand, and you did what was right, and you humbled yourself in your quiet vocational service. God be praised." And so this is, this is just pure joy, pure joy. All right, so again, not to lose the forest for the trees, though um, the point is to contrast how much greater the, um, the new creation to the old, the new covenant to the old, Christ to the angels. And specifically here, Christ as human being, as true man. All right, so far so good. Okay, we got time to go a little further. Chapter 2, verse 1, and as always, my kind of caveat to ignore as best as you can, chapter breaks, um, because they're not in the text as it was written. They're the assumption of an editor, and sometimes they're more helpful than other times. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, a lot of like this sort of subtext or purpose, like, okay, it's, go- it's great and glorious that the author of Hebrews wants to do this great big con- contrast, compare contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but why? What's the pastoral circumstance on the ground that causes him to articulate this theology or to preach this sermon, as, as Hebrews calls itself? What you're seeing is the persecution of the church And really, portents of an even greater persecution to come. And you have this great temptation, especially amongst the Jewish Christians, to just go back to Judaism. It's protected. I can still worship Yahweh, and I don't have to get killed. (laughs) And my family doesn't have to get tortured. So there's this great temptation to apostatize and to go back to the Old Covenant. Thus, the purpose of setting forth this, hey, we need to pay attention to how much greater is the new covenant, and whatever you suffer or endure, it is worth it. Don't go back to that which was lesser in the first place and has now been transcended and eclipsed by Christ and his covenant. Okay, so we already glimpse a little bit of that rhetoric here, but we get that really for the first time in the text. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's really what he's trying to keep his hearers, and by extension us, from doing. Drifting away from um, these, these things that we have heard. Who, From whom have we heard them? Now in these last days he has spoken to us by his... Son, son, yeah. Okay, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, this is um, this is uh, the mediators of the first covenant. So, Galatians three nineteen, Acts seven thirty eight, Acts seven fifty three. These are the other places where you found this uh, find this thing talked about explicitly. Let me see if the study note confirms any of this. It sure does. The study note on verse 2. Angels were responsible for handing on God's law to Moses. Confer with Acts 7.38 and uh, Acts 7.53. Okay, so there you have it. Authoritative. If it's in the study note, it can't be wrong. <laughs> Just easy. <laughs> Just easy. All right, so... um. "...since the message declared by the angels, since the first covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, Mount Sinai, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution." Remember the old old covenant? Um, It's the covenant of the law. There's a consequence for every infraction, and that showed itself to be true. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, is salvation to be found in the law, in the Old Testament covenant per se? No. No, these things point to the one who is our salvation. They point to the one who was promised even before the Sinaitic covenant, namely Christ. These things in and of themselves um, cannot provide salvation to us, but only just retribution to us. And if these things proved true, then how will we escape from them if we neglect such a great salvation? So, you want to run back to Judaism because you think it's safe? You're going to put yourself outside of salvation and back under just retribution you're not going to escape this you're going to go right back into it you have been set free from this you're going to go right back into it this seems to be the rhetorical uh, move here okay continuing on we're just in the latter half of verse three it was declared at first by the lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while god also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Wow there's a lot packed in here. Okay. So the Lord himself was the mediator who came bringing this new covenant, not angels but the Lord, and then the Lord is the one who declared it at first but it was attested to us, confirmed and co-witnessed by those who heard. In view here would be the apostles. This is one of the best reasons to probably think that this isn't St. Paul or one of the twelve, because where does he place himself? Underneath them. So it first came and was declared by the Lord, then it was attested to us by those who heard, that's sort of the second layer, and then we who have heard from them is this third layer, God, apostles, Us. That's where the author of Hebrews is putting himself. Okay, So again, pretty darn good indication that this wouldn't be St. Paul. While God also bore witness, so God confirmed the testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles by bearing witness himself. How so? By things that only he could do. And this really is the point of Pentecost. It's the point of the spiritual gifts of the first century church. And it's why we see so many of these gifts trail off and more or less disappear. Okay, um, The Lutheran position, sometimes this is called cessationism, that the the gifts of Pentecost and the gifts of the Holy Spirit cease. We as Lutherans aren't bound tightly to this by any means. Um, But what we do note is that it seems to be a historical reality um, with some exceptions. The Holy Spirit can still do whatever he wants to do. We get a tale here and there from a missionary who says, I was talking to somebody and he didn't know my language, but we could understand each other. Um, Now, while my posture towards these things personally tends to be a little skeptical, why would I have reason to not believe that the Holy Spirit could do that? There is no good argument. There's no verse that says, and the Holy Spirit therefore declared from here on out no more. Um, so so um but but here's the point I think that where Pentecostalism and the Pentecostal movement of the previous couple centuries, where all of this is is off and so off, because they want the signs and the wonders. Why? For their own sake. The signs and wonders of the first century were only given to confirm. That which was spoken. So that if I'm speaking something to you and I'm saying, God said this, it's like, what's your proof? Here, let me do something that only God can do. That's my proof. You see how that's, <laughs> that's pretty airtight. And that's how the word is confirmed. But once the word is confirmed to indeed be that of God, no more confirmation is needed. Only the word. And that's really what you see moving forward. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's it's kind of our position as, as church, and I don't just mean like Lutheranism. I, it really extends even beyond that. This whole Pentecostal idea, this whole charismatic movement, these things were very popular, especially in the 1970s. <laughs> I assume they continue to some degree or another. It's all signs and wonders as if these were things to themselves. And it all takes attention away from Christ and puts attention on us and the manifestation of these oddities. It's all completely contrary to the kind of theology It's just so grounded and sober um, here in, in Hebrews. All right, but nonetheless, God bears witness himself by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we can think of tongues and all the rest, that were distributed according to his will. I tend to think of Pentecost in a in a rather dynamic way. I, I tend to think of um, the church as the body of Christ. I know this really novel stuff, and Christ as the head. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, it's it's poured out upon. The apostles and that first generation, and it kind of drips down to the rest of the body of Christ. So here and there it shows up as drops hit here and there. But it's one Pentecost. It's one outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, while it's just the miraculous elements that we want to pay attention to, the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out upon us. How so? And the waters of Holy Baptism. It's the ongoing everyday pentecost in the life of uh christ's body here in the world in all times and all places Pentec every time there's a baptism that's pentecost that's the holy spirit who's been poured out from From the first Pentecost all the way to the present, that's a continuation of that, all the way through. So, in that sense, I'm absolutely not a cessationist. In that sense, I believe the essence of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, continues today as thoroughly and fervently and meaningfully as it ever did. All right. I think that that might be sufficient. That might be sufficient for that section. Let me pause and see if you have any thoughts. I know that there was a kind of a lot of different tangents there. See if you have any thoughts, reflections, questions. We're okay? All right. So the next section, yeah, we got three minutes. I don't really think we should get into it. It's great. I will note, by the way, and I'm sorry for this, I noted after the fact, that I had kind of been calling out, you know, in the contrast between Christ and the angels, I'd been kind of calling out different scriptures that, that he was working with. And I had stopped back at verse 10, I think, by calling out Psalm 102. And then I just stopped. And unfortunately, I kind of stopped right where it gets interesting, because he jams a whole bunch of stuff together. He jams um, together text from Isaiah 51. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 34, Psalm 110, which I think we took a look at last week. And then, of course, we have tie-ins with what Jesus himself says in, in Matthew at many places about his kingship and his reign. So I didn't mean to mislead you. This is really kind of a complex section where he's quoting different texts, weaving them together and working with them as the basis of his theological point. All right, next week we will get in all the more into this kind of theme of um, Christ being crowned, coronated, and how it is that he was prepared to be our king and prepared to be our high priest by his life and ministry here among us on earth. The Lord be with you.